Hello and welcome to this episode of Self Made with D Brown CEO. Joining me on the show today is a veteran of the U.S. Navy. She has more than 20 years experience of servant leadership as well as diversity, equity and inclusion. Please help me welcome Commander Lori Chastain to Self Made. Lori, how you doing? I'm, I'm so doing happy well. to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Lori, you have had an amazing career for uh, a female in the U.S. military, uh, but not to mention an African-American uh, female. But I want to go back in time and start with your early years. T tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up and what was life like as a child? Life was very interesting as a child. Um, so I'm actually a military brat. My dad was in the Army. Um, and uh, it was a little different in that I was born overseas. So I was born in Italy. We moved here when I was about three years old. Um, and then I lived in Arizona until I was maybe 12 or 13. And then we moved to Georgia. So with that, I had a different military experience growing up. You know, you hear of most kids, they move one to every two years. Um, my father, his MOS, his job for the Army, uh, he was a linguist. So at the time, he was, I believe, one of very few black men who did what he did. Um, he was fluent in Arabic and Italian. So we were able to stay in one place and have that more stable life um, because he went a lot of places that we could not go um, when we were younger. However, because of his job, uh, I grew up in predominantly white areas um, my entire life. So Italy, Arizona, um, the places where we lived in Georgia, uh, it was it was very interesting. It gave me a different, I think, a different viewpoint on life. So tell me about high school. Where did you go to high school and what was that like? So I went to both Westside High School in uh, Martinez, Georgia, and then a couple years later we moved to Evans, Georgia, and I went to Greenbrier High School. Um, that experience was uh, different on a few levels. Um, we had just moved to Georgia, so of course I am a young 14-year-old. Uh, I'd established myself in Arizona, and here we are, freshman year, um, moving to Georgia. Um, and that experience, it, I remember the first day we moved, we moved to Georgia and my father took me to that school and I cried. I looked at the school and I cried. Hmm. Um, the high school that I was supposed to attend in uh, Arizona, it was brand new, top of the art, state of the art. Um, and then we moved to Georgia and it was a much smaller school. And I remember thinking, this is it. This is where you are forcing me to go to school. No friends. Um, I was supposed to be a cheerleader in Arizona. I ended up joining the band. Nothing wrong with the band. I play the clarinet. I love being in the band. Um, but it was really starting over, and I did it at 14. Mm. Um, in both instances, uh, in Arizona, I was one of very few black students at the school. Um, moving to Georgia, you know, of course there was... Uh, a difference in how I was received. No one knew me. Um, my accent was very different from everyone else's. Um, and some of the students there had grown up in that school system. The teachers knew them. Um, I came in and I was the new kid on the block, of course. Uh, so, you know, overcoming, again, being one of a few black students at that school, but also being new, um, made it slightly more difficult to 
get into that school. Um, while we were there, uh, the area that we lived was very interesting. It was one of those pockets uh, in Augusta where there's good areas and there's not so good areas. Uh, and my sister was zoned to go to a school um, that had a, a reputation of being not a great school. So my parents, again, you know, I'd established myself at Westside High School and then we up and moved to Evans uh, where I started at Greenbrier. Um, and kind of the same thing, you know, the students at Greenbrier, they had come from two different high schools in the area. They all knew each other. And here I was, the girl coming from across town um, and, and having to find a way to fit in there as well. Well, you know, you mentioned kind of throughout your early life, you were always in areas where you were um, one of a few uh, African-Americans. But then you transitioned to college. And so talk to me about that transition, where you attended college and how you made that selection. Yes. Uh, so I went to Spelman College, Spelmanite for life. Um, and I will be honest with you, Spelman was not my first choice. It was not my first choice what, at all. What was your first choice? My first choice was Emory, Emory University, um, the Coca-Cola school. I had gone there. I'd fallen in love. Uh, for the first time, I was living in Georgia, where my family is from. So I didn't want to go too far up north. It was cold. I didn't want to go back out west. Um, Emory was this campus. It was beautiful. And we went to the cafeteria, and the food was great, and everyone was friendly. And I said, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to be. And it was an atmosphere that I was very comfortable in. You know, it's a PWI. That's how I had grown up. Yeah. I felt like I fit in there. Um, I remember one day... I was getting ready to graduate and I was getting cleaned up and my mother was super excited. She's banging on the door. She says, Lori, you got a call from Emory University. I said, yes, perfect. Give me the phone, mom. So she stretches the wire because it's like 1998. Right, right. Um, and I am on the phone with a student from Emory University. And the first words out of this student's mouth were, how does it feel? to be black and be accepted into Emory. Wow. And in that instant, everything that I had done, everything that I had accomplished in life up until then, my GPA, the sports, the music, the community service, being on the student council for the city had all been reduced to the fact that I was black. And I asked her, is that why you called me? Is that why I got into your school. None of the work that I've done mattered. I got into your school because I was black. And I remember I hung up the phone and I went back to my room and I started looking through all of these PWIs that had been sending me information over the years. And I noticed they all had, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is where the African-American students hang out. This is what they do as opposed to everyone else. And it just seemed very separate. And again, I sat in my room and I cried. And my father came in and he said, Lori, your cousin went to Spelman. I am going to take you to Spelman. I had applied, I'd already applied. Um, but again, it, it wasn't my first choice. And I just remember feeling so alone at that moment. And I said, sure dad. You know, I'm willing to try anything. So let me, let me ask you this question. So how did you make a decision to go into the military? Because you obviously you are a high-ranking officer. So how did you get to that 
uh, on that path. So I'd always wanted to join the military. Um, again, with my dad being in the Army, we have a long history of uh, the Bulls family serving in the military on both sides, so the Bulls and the Gardners, the Odoms. Um, my dad was in the military. My grandmother was in the Army. She met my grandfather in the Army during World War II. Um, so I knew that that is what I wanted to do with my life. I felt like that was my calling from a very young age. Um, and I ended up uh, deciding to go to Spelman um, after we did that visit and I felt like I was coming home. Um, then I had to fund a way to go to Spelman. Um, and I had, you know, the ROTC scholarships, the Reserve Officer Training Corps, uh, and I got to choose between the Army and the Navy. Um, at the time, and granted, this is over a quarter of a, a century ago, uh, the Navy scholarship was a better offer than the Army. So I went with the Navy scholarship. Um, I also wanted to give it to my dad that much since he was in the Army. Um, <laughs> that was a joke. I love you, Dad. Um, and uh, that's how I made that decision. So I, I knew that the military was something that I wanted to do, and uh, it helped fund my way through Spelman College. So talk to me about your career and how do you make it to the level of commander? Because obviously there's only a small percentage of uh, officers that are African-American. And then to be an African-American and a female uh, at this rank is ab absolutely uh, you know, amazing. And so you're in, you. in a very small uh, club. Talk to me about how did you get there? Uh, the power of praying parents. Um, I knew that although my father was enlisted, enlisting was not a choice for me. Um, and I had nothing against enlisted personnel. Um, my parents made it very clear that I was going to go to college and if I was going to join the military, I was going to be an officer. Um, I don't know if at the time, I don't know if anyone understood the gravity of what that was, uh, especially in my family where, you know, everyone who served had been enlisted. Um, so I was the first to go through a program that allowed me to become an officer. And uh, from the moment that I joined the Reserve Officer Training Corps, I had to work hard. And I knew I had to work hard. And I knew I had to work harder than everyone else. Um, I had to outrun the guys. I had to outsmart the guys. I had to outperform the guys on every level. Um, and thankfully, with my Command Sergeant Major Daddy, he made sure I was ready <laughs> to do that. Uh, so I got there, and I just I did what I knew how to do. I performed. Um, and for a while, you know, after I got my commissioning, you know, you, you just put your head down and you dig in. And you have to, you get to a point where you get thick skinned. You can't let things bother you. Um, I've had that question posed to me before and people, you know, they always say, well, well, how do you do it? How do you, how do you do it? And, you know, I say you just, if I took the time to complain or raise my hand, about every foul word or comment that I heard, I would be unable to do my job. So I can either focus on the negativity or focus on the positivity and make it happen. So I chose to focus on the positivity and make it happen. So you received a master's degree from the War College. And you know, not, it's not every day that you meet someone who graduated from uh, the War College. Talk to me about, about how did you get into War College 
and what it was like to attend and graduate from there? It was amazing. Um, I had to I had to compete to get into the War College. Uh, they went through um, my records. They looked at my performance up until that point. Um, I was actually asked uh, to consider going back to sea. Um, but at the time, with my husband also being active duty, uh, I needed a little bit of time where I could spend some quality time with my husband. And uh, I insisted that I be chosen to go to the Naval War College. Um, and it was an amazing opportunity. Uh, we lived in Newport, Rhode Island. I got to spend time with my husband. Um, it was really an atmosphere where I was allowed to debate. And what's interesting about the Naval War College is we don't wear uniforms there. So no one is really aware of your rank. Um, so no one feels like I can't speak up because you know I'm a commander or a lieutenant commander or captain. Um, and it reminded me a bit of going to Spelman College where I think that was the first time where I felt empowered to use my voice and speak up. And no one looked at me differently because I was a black female. So at the War College, I leaned on the training that I received from Spelman College uh, to help me get through that program. So you have done some amazing things in the military. Uh, one of the most intriguing things I've heard about is that you ran nuclear reactors on, on uh, naval vessels. Yes. Talk to me about, about the ship and what your role was there. Wow, yes. So the ship was the USS Enterprise. Um, not the Starship Enterprise, but uh, she's an aircraft carrier. Uh, she has now been decommissioned. Um, and she was the first and the fastest in her class. So that was the first U.S. aircraft carrier that was actually um, fitted for nuclear reactors. She had eight. And by the time I was 26 years old, I was in charge of four of those reactors. Um, I remember the first day walking down the pier uh, I met her on deployment, we were in Malaysia, and here I am standing in front of this aircraft carrier, and I think the soundtrack to Transformers was going on in the back of my head, and I'm going, this is the biggest thing I have ever seen. What am I going to do? And then my mother and my father kicked in, put your head down and get it done. So I walked on board, requested permission to uh, come aboard, went down, I got to know my plants. Um, I had always known that there were very few uh, African-American females who were doing what I was doing, very few. And I took that very seriously. Um, I did not want to be someone who was seen as, you know, oh, she graduated from an HBCU and that's why she couldn't do it. That's why she didn't make it. Because unfortunately, um, throughout society, I think there's still that um, stereotype of HBCU graduates, which is completely untrue. Um, and I went there and, and I was faced with a little bit of that. Um, but having to go through, first it was nuclear power school down in Charleston. And, you know, I was the political science major and everyone thought, you know, how is she going to do this? How is she going to get through? Right. Um, I think oftentimes as an African-American female, uh, we get we get undercut. We don't we don't have the same expectations in a positive way placed on us that males do. Tell me, but tell me about the how accurate you have to be in order to run 
these power plants because that's a very big deal as well. Yes, uh, extremely accurate. Um, so I was the uh, reactor controls division officer. Um, so I was in charge of all of the electronic side of the reactors um, in making sure that the systems were um, calibrated correctly um, because what ends up happening in nuclear power, um, everything is based on differentials and exponents. So if you are looking at a number and it's supposed to go out to four decimal places. If you are off by one decimal place, well, and just to break it down very simply, right? If you're looking at 10 kilowatts and you're supposed to be starting up your systems at 10 kilowatts of power, well, now you're off a decimal place. So now that's a thousand kilowatts, 10,000 kilowatts, a hundred thousand kilowatts. Uh, and before you know it, you're in a very bad situation that no one wants to be in. Yeah. Um, so. It was literally my job when we would shut down those reactors, they would just bring me books of calculations and I would have to go through encyclopedias and do all the calculations, make sure they were all accurate, make sure they were correct, make sure, you know, if someone else had looked at them, um, make sure that they had done those calculations accurately as well um, to prevent uh, a nuclear incident. And that is, for us in the Navy, that is so important because what a lot of people don't realize, um, the Navy is actually the only organization in America that is allowed to operate nuclear reactors outside of the Department of Energy. Um, and that is all due to our people, um, our training and our accuracy in what we do. Now, currently you are stationed at the Pentagon. Yes where you are a deputy uh, director, is yes. that correct? Talk to me about your role there. So right now, um, it's the uh, deputy branch head of what we call our performance to serve, uh, sorry, performance to plan team. Um, we have another performance to serve, not related. Uh, and what we do, we have a team of personnel. Um, it's very interesting and it's very unique. So uh, myself and my direct boss, um, we are the only military personnel on our team. The rest of our team, they're all government contractors. And we go in and we take a look at how the Navy writ large is operating. And we try and find inefficiencies. We call them levers, different levers that we can pull um, to change the outcome. Right. We're trying to think more um, of our operations monetarily. You know, previously it was it was more of a, um, a standard. If you, you know, do something well over here, then you're going to get a great outcome over here. Well, what was that great outcome? And how much did that outcome cost? And did anyone think about that before we got there? So we actually go in and we try to find areas where we can operate, you know, more efficiently. Um, if we can save money, you know, that's a plus. Um, it helps to think of it in terms of Lean Six for the military, well, for the Navy. And that's what my team does now. So do do this for me. Tell me about, uh, you've been on a number of deployments. What is one of the most, I guess, um, memorable incidents that have occurred during your deployment? Wow, there are so many to choose from. Um, I think one of the most memorable would be probably the one that shaped me the most. Um, I was very young in my career. I was an ensign. I think I'd been in the Navy less than a year, maybe right out a year. Uh, and we were deployed to Indonesia for the 2004 tsunami. Um, and I distinctly remember we were on deployment 
and it was over Christmas, and we were in this place called Kowloon um, near Hong Kong, and it is it is a party town, and we were out, we were young, we were all partying, and someone says, you know, we're dancing, hey, did you hear about the tsunami in Indonesia? We're like, yeah, that's terrible. And another one of my counterparts says, isn't one of the missions of the Navy humanitarian service? And we were all so young and we're partying. We're like, ah, I don't know, maybe. The next day we are back on board the ship and we're getting ready to get underway. So we were tapped to do a completely different mission. Um, I had officer the deck, which means I was in control of driving the ship. And the captain looks at us, we were standing there with his team. And he says, right now, I don't know what's going to happen when we get to the end of this channel. You know, if we go one direction, we're going on the original mission. If we go in the other direction, uh, we're going to go down to Indonesia and help out with the tsunami. And we're all standing there going, oh, this is that humanitarian service thing, okay. Um, Sure enough, we get to the end of the channel and we went in the other direction. So all of a sudden, here I am, 24 years old, heading down to Indonesia. Have no idea what I'm going to see, we are getting training on our way down on how to drive a ship in the event that another earthquake comes and another tsunami and more waves and how do we respond uh, to keep our crew safe. Um, we are getting trained on you know, the mental aspects and to prepare yourself mentally for what we may see, i.e. the dead bodies from what had just happened. Um, and. We were actually second on station. Uh, We were escorting the Ronald Reagan at the time um, into, I'm sorry, it was the Lincoln, into the area. And uh, the first time I saw one of the victims of the tsunami, I did not realize what it was. And it was the young lady who was with me who called it. um, And all of a sudden it clicked. And I went, oh my goodness, that that was a body, that was a victim. Um, And then from there, it was just, it was months of, you know, really seeing that kind of destruction and trying to comprehend that, right? You see in the movies when you're young, you know, the casualties of war, but that's something that you don't expect to see that's not a casualty of war. Um, And learning to cope with that and really growing up and becoming a leader in that type of an atmosphere where you are helping victims who are really truly in need, but at the same time, you're helping yourself, you're helping those who are working around you because that's something none of us had experienced. Um, And I have taken that time in Indonesia with me through my entire career because I think that is what truly made me an officer and truly made me a leader. So tell me about Loran Enterprises. What are you doing there? So uh, Loran Enterprises, um, that is a a small consulting company that my husband and I uh, co-founded together. Uh, Literally, we were sitting at our kitchen table and um, we're both, you know, coming up on the end of our time. No one wears a uniform forever. What are we going to do? Um, And I had had conversations with my husband and I said, you know, I want to make sure our kids are okay. I want to make sure that we are in a position to build that generational wealth for our children. You know, what are we going to do? 
and we decided to come up with Loran Enterprises. So most people think that uh, the company name is actually my husband and myself put together, Lori and Randy. Um, it's actually for my sons, Lauren and Randolph, so Loran yes. Enterprises. Okay. Um, and, and we hope to be successful and uh, pass that down to our children. But basically what we have done um, is we have taken the skills that we have learned in leadership, in management, and the 10 other things, talent, um, growing talent, building teams. Uh, I also have an MBTI certification. Um, we've taken all these skills that we have learned in the Navy, and we basically go out to different companies, different agencies, um, and we help apply that to their companies. Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, we, we come in, we sit, we listen, you tell us what we need, what you need, um, and we go back, we take it, we have a small team, all veterans, um, and we come up with the best strategic plan to help this company reach their goals. Gotcha. So one final question, uh, and I know this would have been either during college or early in your military career, but do you recall where you were and what you were doing uh, during 9-11? Yes, I was in college and I was preparing to go to class. Um, and it was, I do not remember if it was a Tuesday or a Thursday, but I remember it was a day that we wore our uniforms for ROTC. And I was putting on my uniform and it was, uh, I think it was con law I was getting ready to go into. Um, and I walked out and I was like, that was, that was very strange. But you know, maybe I didn't see that. And I went to class. And uh, at the time, there were a, quite a few students from the Washington, D.C. area. And, uh, you know, people were getting, like, news. I don't even remember how we were doing it. It was before the Internet back then. Right. In fact, the, the Internet was very early in this very cycle early. during that time frame. Uh, there was an incident that I think impacted all of us. But um, we're out of time for this episode. And, Lori, I appreciate you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Lori Chastain, Commander in the U.S. Navy. And thank you for watching this episode of Self Made with D. Brown CEO. And remember, without you, there's no me.